In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We'll start today from verse 27, from chapter 5, from the Gospel of Saint Matthew. As you know, uh, Matthew 5, 6 and 7 uh, is called the Sermon on the Mountain. Uh, in the Gospel of Saint Matthew, there are five discourses. One of them, or the first one, is the same five homeless? It's called Amin homeless. It's five homeless, uh, and, and the first one is the Sermon on the Mountain. Uh, it started with the Beatitudes, and then actually the Lord explained that He did not come to destroy the temple, uh, to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And He started giving example how He came to fulfill the law not to destroy them. The main difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the grace. What I mean the grace? In the Old Testament, God gave them the commandment, but He did not give them the grace to keep the commandment. That's why not, not everybody was able to keep the, the commandment of God. But in the New Testament, God gave us the grace. And that's why even the requirements of the commandments became higher because now we have the grace of God. And this is what made St. John says, and we know that his commandments are not burdensome because we have the grace of God as we read in John chapter 1. Uh, the law was given by Moses, but the grace and truth by Jesus Christ. So, in uh, in, in the last week, actually, in the Bible study last week, we spoke about anger and murder. How in the Old Testament the commandment was, thou shalt not uh, kill, but in the New Testament, God took the commandment to fulfill it into a higher level. What makes a person kills another person? If he anger. That's why we spoke about anger. Now, the second example is adultery. Let's read, starting from verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her, he already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, according to the Jewish law, the Jewish rabbis, they said, as long as the person did not commit the act, he is guiltless. So if you look at somebody to lust after her, but you did not commit sin with her, then you are not guilty before God. That is the teaching of the Jewish rabbis. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants us to examine our heart. Because what makes a person commit the act? What makes a person to fall in adultery? It starts actually with lusting after a woman in his heart. So if we protected our heart and if we did not allow the heart to lust after anybody, then we will never end up by committing 
the sin. That's why if the heart is impure, full of unholy desire, then the person is guilty. That's what the Lord said. If you look at a woman with the intention to lust after her, then actually you are guilty, even if you did not commit the act. That's why God wants us to be pure in heart. And he said in the Beatitude, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Usually, the word adultery in, in, uh, in the English language means a person commit a sin with a married woman. But when the Lord said, if, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart, actually the original Greek word doesn't mean you uh, uh, commit a sin with a married woman. So here we are not to suppose from the word adultery that the Lord restricts the breach of the commandment to married persons. No, this applied for everybody. So when he said, Who look, whoever looks, so it is anybody, whether you are uh, married or you are not married, or you have looked at looking or lusting at a married woman or an unmarried woman. So it is all forms of impurity are intended here, whether married or unmarried. And the Greek word is clearer than the English word. It actually includes everybody. And here actually, as uh, his honest Pope Shinoda also explained this verse, he did not say, who look uh, and lust. He said, to look to lust. What do I mean? If you look at a woman and then Satan attacked you, but you made the sign of the cross and you asked God to help you and you turned your uh, eyes away, then actually, yes, you are tempted with lust, but you fought it. But the word here means the second look. When you look with the intention to lust, and that's what exactly Pope Shonda said, the second look, for example, if you are tempted, then you turn with your eye again to look in order to lust. This was considered adultery. As the Lord said, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust with the intention to lust for her, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. So here the eyes that gives a lustful look, that is what considered adultery. But God actually, he has a treatment for this. And this treatment is called radical amputation. Radical amputation. What's radical amputation? He said, if your eye, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you than one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And the Lord actually used this analogy and expanded more. And he said, and if your right hand 
causes you to, to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. What is the principle of radical amputation? Definitely God doesn't want us to pluck out our eyes literally or to cut our hand or to cut our uh, leg literally. But he means the lustful eye. We need to get rid of it. So anything that tempts me to sin with our thoughts within, with our friends, with our surrounding, we need actually to cast it away from me. Anything that leads me to sin. And I usually say this to people who suffer from pornography or fight with pornography. I tell them the Lord is said, if your eyes causes you to sin, pluck it out. So if the internet causes you to sin, disconnect it completely. That's what we call radical amputation. You need actually to disconnect it completely. You may tell me, but I need it for the homework, I need it to do some work for the church, whatever. Yes, here actually, maybe it's better to go to public library to do your homework. And, and to be inconvenient for you. Because having the internet with you will make actually the fight uh, harder on you. So, if a friend causes you to sin, if a friend teaches you drugs, if a friend teaches you bad stuff, if a friend invites you to go with him to bad places, block it out, cut it off, end this friendship. As the Lord taught us, it's better to uh, go to heaven with one of your members is cut off than to be thrown into hell with your whole body. It's better to suffer deep mortification by self-denial than to be judged worthy of hell. Uh, yes, let me tell you, to overcome lust and to overcome uh, the, the bad desires of heart, it is painful. You need actually to take painful steps but this is required for healing. Like sometimes people, if they have uh, gangrene in, in, in their finger, again, what's the treatment? It's amputation. But if he refused amputation, he will die. So he compromised one finger or maybe the whole foot or maybe sometimes underneath or, or the whole lower limb. He sacrificed this in order to save his life. The same rule applies for Christian life. You need actually to go through some painful exertions in order to save your eternal life. It must be done if you want the victory over lust and the desires of hearts. As St. Augustine said, certainly there is need of great courage in order to cut off one's members. There is a need of great courage in order to cut off one's member. Then after the Lord spoke about adultery, he spoke about 
another form of adultery, which comes with divorce. Verse 31. He said, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That was the practice in the Old Testament. Moses instructed them, if you're going to divorce your wife, then give her a certificate of divorce like a release, so she can go and marry somebody else. That is the Old Testament. But what is the teaching in the New Testament? The fulfillment of the law. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Let me explain this. As I told you, the divorce law was very lax among the Jews. And according to the Jewish law, any man can put away his wife just for any reason. And actually, they asked the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 19, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? The word for any reason, this was the practice that they used to do in, 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 uh, in Israel. Moses, in order to protect the women's right, he told, okay, if you want to divorce your, your wife, at least give her a legal letter of divorce. A legal letter of divorce. As you read in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And this is what the Lord referred to you when he said, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Uh, but the Lord Jesus Christ told us, no. Uh, divorce is forbidden except for sexual immorality. Divorce is forbidden except for uh, sexual immorality. Why? Marriage is a divine institution. It is a covenant. It is not a contract. It is a covenant. You can break a contract, but you cannot break a covenant. And it is a covenant made before God and in the presence of God. And that's why the obligation for marriage is for life. For life. So, if a person who is married divorces his wife for any reason, they are maybe civil, in the civil court, they are divorced. But before God, this marriage is not dissolved. So before God, he's still married to this woman. So, if this man went and married another woman, then as if he committed adultery. Because in, before God, he is married to his wife, he's still married to his wife, that he divorced her in the court. In the same way, if this woman married another person, she commits adultery. Because before God, she is still married to her husband. 
That's why those who are divorced for any cause, except for the single cause of adultery, sexual immorality, if they marry again, they are living in adultery. They are living in adultery. And that's why the church does not give them permit for remarriage. Permit for, for remarriage. And even in the secular world, there is a book called Divorce Busting. And the author of this book is an atheist. And she said uh, that I'm not writing this book from any religious background because I'm an atheist. But let me give you my, she's saying, let me give you my experience about divorce. She's against divorce. She said, number one, most of the people who are divorced, when they remarry, they remarry the same personality. Why? Because what made you attract to this person to begin with will make you attract to the same personality. So the people who are divorced and remarried, they marry the same personality. Number, the second observation that she said. Actually, in order to divorce and finish all the fights about the custody, children, custody and the money, actually they do a lot of effort. And at the end, maybe after fighting five years in the course or whatever, they reach an agreement. So she's saying, now you are, you are able to reach an agreement in the courts. And both of you abode by this agreement. Don't you think if you use all this effort for reconciliation would be much better than to use this effort to separate? That's her second observation. Third observation she said, from statistics. She said, 80% of those who are divorced and remarried again did not have a better life. Did not have a better life. Usually people, when they think to divorce, they actually want to divorce in order to have a better life. But they don't. And in, in my service, I can see this. You know, two weeks ago, I had a phone call from a person who was divorced and she got a permit from the church and she remarried. And in, in her second marriage, actually, it was worse than the first marriage. Because, again, she was attracted to the same personality. So, it's better for those who are considering divorce to think a thousand times. They, they claim or they accuse the church, it is not fair. The, the church doesn't deal with them with compassion. The church controls them. The church doesn't give them their freedom. But they are wrong. Actually, if they think about it, God and the divine law want to protect them from hurting themselves and hurting their children. In divorce, everybody loses the husband, the wife, and the children. No winners. No winners. Everybody lose in divorce. Then the Lord spoke about swearing. He spoke about murder. 
Then he spoke about adultery. Then he spoke about swearing. Verse 33. Again, you have heard in the Old Testament that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his, his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So, the regulation of oath is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, and Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 23. According to the Jewish law, what was prohibited is to swear falsely. So, it is okay to swear as long as you will fulfill your swearing. But to swear falsely, it is prohibited. And to swear using the name of God, it is prohibited. And they give permission to a certain number of oaths that can be used in common conver uh, conversation. For example, they allowed, you can swear by the temple, you can swear by your head, you can swear by heaven, you can swear by earth, but you cannot swear by God. So, in the Old Testament, the Jewish regulation was, as long as you swear and you fulfill the swearing, it's okay. And as long as you don't use the name of God in swearing, so what's prohibited is to swear falsely or to swear by the name of God. But the Lord Jesus Christ came and condemned swearing of every kind and on every occasion. He, he, he was very clear here. Don't swear at all. Don't swear at all. Neither by heaven. Why not by heaven? Because it is God's throne. Uh, and, and I will explain this. Not, not, or by earth, because it is his, his footstool. Nor by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. So, if you are swearing by heaven, it is the throne of God. If you are swearing by earth, that's where his foot his footstool. If you are swearing by Jerusalem, this is the city. And all these are too holy for profanation. You cannot use them because they are too holy. It's related to God directly. Either his throne or his footstool or his city. Because in the, people, in the people's mind, okay, I'm not going to swear by heaven or earth. But I, I, my head belongs to me, so I can serve by my head. But the Lord Jesus Christ said, no. Even, verse 36, nor shall you swear by your head. Why? Because you cannot make one hair white or black. You don't have control over your head. So don't think that it is 
under your control. Actually, it is you, it's beyond your control. And swearing here means you swear with something stable. What's a swearing? A swearing, when you swear with something stable, so are, you are saying, as this will not change, then my oath will not change. But if your head and the hair in your head will change, it is not stable, then you cannot swear by your head. It's profane to swear by your head. That's why the Lord said, in swearing by your own head and the like, the objection lies that they are being uh, uh, beyond our control. You don't have control over your head. That's why you cannot swear by. And also, it is profane to have stability or think they are stable while they are not stable. Because your head, the hair in your head actually will change from white, from black to white, etc. So, what should we do if we are not swearing at all? The answer in verse 37. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than this is from the evil one. So it is a very simple statement what we should say. Let your yes, yes, and let your no, no. And actually, if you want to swear, to make people believe you, most probably they will doubt you. Why you are you using swearing? Or is it easier to say, I am honest, I am faithful, what I'm saying is the truth. This, this actually can make people doubt you. People usually doubt the truth of him who wants to confirm every statement by swearing. And he just, I have another comment I want to say. When the Lord said, let your yes be yes and your no be no, many times we teach our children that saying no is a sin. No, actually. God wants us to be able to say yes and to say no. To say no to evil. To say no to bad friendship. To say no to breaking the commandment of God. So, as Sunday school servants and as parents, we need to teach our children there is a time to say yes and there is a time to say no. But sometimes in order to teach them obedience, tell them, don't say no. No is a bad word. No, no, it's not a bad word. That's why the Lord said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Then actually, the Lord spoke about Repaying evil. How to repay evil. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the, on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Uh, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, this commandment, it is found in Exodus 
Leviticus 24, verse 20, Deuteronomy 19:21. In these commandments, uh, there is obligation on the offender to suffer the same injury he had to commit it. So if I hurt one's eye, then actually I should lose my eye. If I, I block his tooth off, then actually I will lose my tooth. Uh, here I want to tell you, the Lord Jesus Christ does not forbid the application of the law. But he is forbidding here the personal revenge. The personal revenge. Because the Jews took this law, which was meant to the court, and they applied by themselves. And now we can see the same thing is done by the terrorists. There is difference between a court, when I have uh, a case and I go to the court, and the court actually uh, puts some uh, punishment on the offender. This is approved as we read in Romans chapter 13. But here the Lord is prohibiting the personal revenge. So somebody does something for me, so I will do it for him. I'm repaying evil by evil. So here the Lord is saying, no, stay away from personal uh, revenge. And instead of turning upon those who injure you, actually it is our responsibility as Christians to suffer meekly. To suffer meekly. And this actually the law of love which endures all things as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13. And in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ we found during the court during his trial when a person slapped him actually uh, he asked him why you slapped him why why the lord asked him this and why he did not turn the other cheek because during the trial uh, he should be found unguilty otherwise if he was found guilty then his sacrifice will not be acceptable that's why he told the Jews, who can convict me for any sin, right? But after the trial was over, so in the trial, he has to prove that he is guiltless. So his sacrifice would be accepted. But after the uh, trial was over, when he slapped him, actually, as Isaiah said in his prophecy, and we said in St. Gregory liturgy, actually, his cheek, he left them to those who slap, to those. So he, he allowed them to slap him, and, and he did not turn only the other cheek. He neglected completely, and he let them to, to, to slap him, you know, all the way. Uh, so in applying this verse, turn the other cheek, we need actually to apply it in uh, a spiritual way. And, and we should, should have a loving heart and a forgiving heart. And when he says, do not resist an evil person, he is speaking about 
personal resistance. You may report him to the court, but you cannot actually resist an evil person to fight back and to revenge by yourself. It's against actually the teaching of Christianity. Vengeance is mine, I will replace his alone. But if, there, if you have a case against anybody, it's okay to be taken to the court uh, and the court, uh, according to St. Paul in Romans chapter 15, uh, we will judge in this situation. Uh, so, do not resist an evil person, it's about personal revenge. Uh, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one uh, to him. Uh, this has to be done uh, in a spiritual way, to focus on the spirit more than the letter. Actually, somebody will slap you. Mostly, yeah, he will slap you if he's right-handed. He will slap you on the left cheek, not on the right cheek. But when the Lord said, on the right cheek here, you know, uh, he means that maybe from behind, uh, if somebody from behind, uh, so if somebody came and, and, and tricked you or, or did something bad to you, it did conspiracy against you, you need to forgive him, endure this, and to stay away from personal revenge. But if there is a case uh, to be done in the court, uh, Christianity is not against them. Verse 40. If anyone wants to sow you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ wants to emphasize we should be kind to one another, loving to one another. That's why he condemned any litigations tempted to destroy brotherly kindness and charity. He condemned any litigations to destroy brotherly kindness and charity. What's the difference between the clock and the garment? He said, if anybody uh, wants to sew you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. What's the difference between the cloak and the tunic? The cloak is the outer and most costly garment. Uh, and this overcoat, the cloak, uh, sorry, the tunic, the tunic is a cheaper and it is uh, the, the internal uh, garment. So the Lord is saying here, if, any, if anyone wants actually to take uh, your tunic, which is cheaper, let him have your cloak also. If anybody wants to sew you and take your tunic, which is cheaper, actually you can give him also what's more expensive, which is the cloak. Uh, According to uh, the teaching of the Old Testament, the, the tunic was not allowed to be retained overnight as a pledge from the poor because they used it for a bed covering. 
So, if, if, if a poor person borrowed money from me, so I took his cloak as a pledge that he will uh, bring the money back. And according to the Old Testament, I can have the cloak with me all day. But before night, whether he paid or he did not pay, I have to return the cloak to him. Why? Because this was used as a bit covering. So in order not to sleep without covering, I should actually uh, return the cloak to him. Uh, so the Lord is saying, if somebody is sowing you to take your tunic, it is better to give it up, to give it up not only the tunic but the cloak, than to engage in a legal action against each other. Yes, I said a few minutes ago, if there is a case, you can actually uh, go to the court, according to Romans chapter 13. But before going to the court, St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's better to resolve these things in the church, not to take your brother to a court and to be judged by those who are unbelievers because they will not follow, they will follow the civil law, not God's law. And St. Paul in First Corinthians chapter 6 actually said it is shameful that you take your brother to the court. But if your brother did not abide by the church court or by the church law, then here, if you take him to the court, he will be counted as, and after the church, count him as a Pharisee or a tax collector, then you can go to the court according to St. Paul teaching in, in, uh, in, in, in Romans chapter 13. But again, Here's the Lord in Matthew chapter 5 and St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Both of them said it's better to lose than to take a legal action. It's better to lose and to suffer the loss of your money or of your cloak than to take a legal action. That's what the Lord said. If your brother saw you and St. Paul said why don't you suffer injustice rather than going to the court. So it, it is better to give it up than to engage in a legal action. Why? Because here, when we lose our money or our property, but not we did not lose our souls by losing our love for God and man, then actually we won. So the winning here when you win your soul. If you go to the court, maybe you will win your money. But you lost your love to your brother. You understand the logic here? If you go to the court, you will win your money. But where is your love to your brother? You lost it. But when you, you refuse to go to the court, even if you lose your money or your property, but you win your love for God and for your brother, then actually, you are the true winner here. 
verse 41 whoever compels you to go one mile go with him too at that time actually there was no cars there was no uh, railroad trains nothing so it was common for the officers traveling to force people to assist them on route and to force them to compel them to walk with them one mile uh, and this was done by oppression so the Lord told us if somebody compels you to walk with him one mile if you only walk one mile this means what? this means you are walking this mile out of compulsion not out of love but if you walk with him two miles this means actually you are walking with him willingly because you love Christ and you love your brother that's why the second mile is considered the mile of love that's why the Lord told us when we serve we need actually to double it to double it to do it the double if I was compelled to walk on mine I will walk to mine not to refuse it but to double it uh, verse 42 give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you do not turn away give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you do not turn away some people will say but many people will take advantage of us if we do this of course we learned from the story of Abraham the bishop of Fayyum who was actually applying this verse literally uh, that God actually defended him when people tried to take advantage of him yes we need to use discernment in order not to enable a wrong behavior yes we need to use discernment but let me tell you this it is better to give sometimes to an undeserving person than to turn away one who is really in need so it is better to give this bigger the benefit of the doubt if you doubt actually that he is really deserving and you decided not to give him maybe your actually assumption is wrong so if you did not help a needy a person who is really in need because you doubted him is it better or is it better to give undeserving person and not to take a chance not to help a person who is really in need so the rule here it is better to give sometimes to an undeserving person than to turn away one who is really in need this is actually the general rule we are not to turn away or deny him who asks us then the last commandment the lord used uh, to show how he came to fulfill the law is a commandment of how we deal with our enemies as he said in verse 43 you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy 
But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. The commandment to love our neighbor was a law of God, as we read in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But the Jews gave the commandment a very limited application. They elaborated in this commandment that you need to love only your neighbor, but to hate your enemy. That's why the Lord told them, you have heard. This was the interpret, uh, interpretation of the Jews of, this, of the commandment, love your, your neighbor as yourself. So they interpreted, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he took this commandment to another level. And he used the parable of the Good Samaritan to show us that we should deal with our enemies with a good heart, with a loving heart. As the Good Samaritan helped the Jewish person who was half dead, although he was enemy, each of us, we should follow this example. Uh, and actually, when we deal with our enemies with a loving heart, we will turn them to be our friends. When we embrace them and when we show them love, actually we will turn them from enemies to be friends. Love the enemy, this commandment, is the most inspirational piece of morality ever given to man. No other religion, no other philosopher, no other uh, moral teachers give a commandment like this, love your enemies. And the world does not understand this commandment. That's why this commandment is considered the fundamental law of the kingdom of Christ. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. Uh, and the Lord's life on earth is a perfect application. We can see how he conquered his enemies by his love. For God so loved the world, we're in enmity with God, but he came and died on the cross to save us. So, in application, what does it mean to love our enemies? He told us, bless those who curse you. So love will return a blessing for, for cursing. So anybody, when he curse me, I will bless him instead. And actually, I will return good for those who hate me. That he said, do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So this love will be manifested when I return a blessing for cursing, when I will return a good for those who hate me, when I will return a prayer for evil treatment and persecution. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ asked forgiveness for those who crucified him. And Saint Stephen, while he was stoned, he asked God 
not to charge them with this sin. When the Lord said, bless those who curse you, the word bless means speak well of them, or speak well to them. Speak well of them, or speak well to them. If you think about this commandment, it is difficult to apply unless we have the grace of God, unless we have the mind of Christ, unless we have the love of God abiding in our heart. So to be able to apply this verse, you need to have the mind of Christ, the love of God abiding in your heart, and the grace of God helping you and supporting you. Uh, Those who are making a continual war upon us, you cannot change them. But only one who can change them, that's God. That's why you need to pray for them. That's the only way. Pray for those who spitefully persecute you and speak evil of you. Because those, nothing can change them except the God. That's why the Lord told us, pray for them. Verse 45, when we do this, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We will be God's children if we have the spirit of our Heavenly Father. As God does good to the enemies, to his enemies. We need actually to do good to our enemies to resemble God. If we don't do good to those who hate us, then we have the spirit of the world, not the spirit of God. God sent his blessing without any differentiation between the good and the evil, between the just and the unjust, the rain, the sunshine, for everybody, whether righteous or unrighteous, just or unjust. And we need actually to have the spirit of God. God loved everybody. He sent his son to die on the cross for the whole world, the wicked and the righteous, without any uh, differentiation. Uh, Then actually the Lord elaborated more in verse 46 and 47. He said, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collector do so? And I want, you to, I want to remind you that previously, in the same chapter, the Lord told us in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, you, you, will be, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So what if your righteousness does not exceed not only the righteousness of the, text, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, but even does not exceed the righteousness of tax collectors, then what's your situation here? So the Lord is saying, anybody, even the ungodly, even the sinners, even the tax collectors, 
They greet those who greet them. They love those who love them. Then you are not different than them if you do the same. But what will make you unique? What will make you a true son of God and a true daughter of God? Is to love those who do not love you. Is to love even your enemies. So, in loving those who love you, there is no evidence of superior principle. Even the worst of men will do this. Even the tax collector will go that length. We should be like God. What, who is or what is our real enemy? Or who is our real enemy? It is sin. For God, God has no enemies. God does not hate anybody except sin. And in the same way, we should not have any enemies. We should only have sin as our enemy. The Jewish people refused to speak to a Gentile, to a publican, to a sinner. But they only greeted Jewish people like them, Orthodox Jews like them. Uh, and even the Gentiles, the heathen nation, uh, also they apply the same rule. They have love for people who are similar to them. Gentiles love the Gentiles, heathen love the, the heathen only. But we, the disciples of Christ, we should love better than the Jews. And we should not be on the same level like the heathen and the publicans, but we, the children of God, we are on a superior level because we are the children of the Heavenly Father. Then the last verse in this chapter, Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. So, the Lord concludes this part by asking us to be perfect. Uh, he, as if he is saying, if you fulfill the law of love, if you love your enemies, and you bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully accuse you, if you do this, then you will be perfect, like your Heavenly Father. So, when we apply the law of love, it will lift me, to the divine standard of perfection. And this should be the aim of our life, the goal of our life. We have to set before us the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. As St. Peter told us he, left us, he left us an example to follow his footsteps. Uh, and we, we, we see how the divine perfection was embodied in Christ. And we need to follow the example of Christ. Of course, to be absolutely perfect, it is impossible. So we know that we will never be absolutely perfect. But we will grow toward perfection. That's why we are, while we are in the flesh, we will be in constant struggle to come near to this level. To the level of perfection. So this should be our aim, our goal. How to change from glory to glory to that image, the image of the perfect God. 
Yes, as St. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I did not comprehend, I did not attain, but one thing I do, I forget what's behind and pursue what is before. Move forward, press on toward the goal. So, be perfect doesn't mean we will live our life here without sin. Because nobody is without sin even if his life on earth is a single day. So when the Lord told us, be perfect, he does not teach us that we will not sin at all. Or we will attain absolute perfection. But he is telling us, this is the model. This is the goal. This is the perfect ideal that we have to place in front our uh, our eyes and con constantly will ascend higher by the grace of God and by striving to attain this level. And this includes chapter 5 from the Gospel of St. Matthew. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.